Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham, to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name of Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day of Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great fast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar and the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and about your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He said he set them on the shoulder he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard, her, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew, grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While, there was, while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Philok, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children, or my descendants, show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. 
Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philoch, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Well, thanks very much. Uh, please keep the passage open and uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. Thank you for your spirit who opens up your word and writes it on our hearts. And we pray that by his power today we would hear you speak and um, our lives would be changed as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what impact should God's blessing have on our daily lives? What difference does his grace towards us have on our minds and on our hearts? Uh, Is there one effect when those blessings are obvious and another when they seem to be quite a long way away? Uh, The chapter before us today combines the ordinary and the extraordinary. Uh, Family joy and family trouble. Business dealings and business troubles. And in it we see laughter and lashing out complaints and covenants, waiting and worship. It feels as we read it through <coughs> a bit of a soap opera and we, we wonder what, what is it that ties all this together? But I think noticing the messiness of the chapter in a sense is the first step towards hearing God speak to us through it. Because life is messy, isn't it? It's complicated. It's up and down and yet God is always there. Through those ups and downs, through those special seasons through those mundane, ordinary times, God is there. And his intention is to bless us, to bless his people through Jesus. That's what the book of Genesis is about. It's about God blessing the world, seeking to bless the world. And so we're going to discover three ways in which that blessing can touch and transform our lives as we walk through this chapter together. And the first one concerns the birth of a son. So first, our first lesson, God's fulfilled promises are intended for our joy. God's, in, God's fulfilled promises are intended for our joy. Verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. It's that moment Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for. It's a pledge that is 25 years in the making. And through that quarter of a century, the promise of a son has come into sharper and sharper focus. It's what we've been looking at over the last few months. Remember back in chapters 12 and 13, God says that Abraham's offspring will inherit the promised land. 
By the time chapter 15 comes around, Abraham has no biological heir, and so he assumes that his chief servant is going, to, is going to inherit everything, and God says, no, your own flesh and blood will inherit your estate. In chapter 16, they're still waiting, and so they take matters into their own hands. Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and Ishmael is born, and God says, it's still not the promised child. Chapter 17, God names the promised child before he's even conceived. He conceived, he said, he will be called Isaac. Abraham laughs a laugh of joyful um, wonder. And then Sarah overhears the promise again later in chapter 18, and she laughs a laugh, but it's not a joyful laugh. It's a laugh of kind of sarcastic, bitter disbelief. And then finally, a year later, as God said, 25 years since the first promise, Sarah's laughter turns to joy. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Uh, Last week, um, I introduced our guest preacher, Richard, to a member of the congregation after the service. And uh, Richard, who tends to say it as it is, observed to this particular gentleman with these two little children running around his feet, would it be fair to say that you are an older father? And of course, um, Simon was thrilled to speak of marrying Alice and of the birth of Richard and Helen, many years after um, contented bachelorship. I think um, Simon and Alice are in the crash. I probably should have asked for permission before using that illustration, so apologies. But if Simon and Alice were full of joy when Richard and Helen were born, just consider the joy that Sarah must have radiated out of her heart when Isaac was born. Because in that culture at that time, and and as is still the case in some cultures today, to not have a child was a source of great shame. It meant a curse from God. Imagine the questions Sarah had put up with for the last 25 years, but even longer than that throughout her whole life. Where are your children, Sarah? You mean you don't have any? Not even one? And how long have you been married? What have you done? But God's fulfilled promise removes her shame. Her neighbors will no longer laugh at her. They will chuckle along with her. As she tells that story of waiting, and instead of tears down her face, there will be tears of joy. And there will be a smile spreading from ear to ear. And that wrinkled, weather-beaten face will be creased with creases of happiness. Well, what about for you and me? How does God produce joy in our lives today through the fulfillment of his promises. Well, let us remember that it is not 25 years that we have been waiting for the birth of a son. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised a child who would crush the head of the serpent and who would overthrow and undo all the works of the devil. And then Abel was born and we thought, maybe it's him. And then he's murdered by his brother and Cain is cast out into the desert. And then Adam and Eve have another child, Seth, and his line traces down to Noah, the one who gives rest and who who takes people through the flood. But Noah's not the promised child. And then Noah's promised line goes all the way to Abraham and then God says, to you I will give an offspring and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. From those great cosmic moments at the beginning of Genesis, God has been working his purpose out to bring a promised child who will bring joy to the world. And Isaac's birthday remembers that no matter how long we wait, God always 
fulfills his promises. Fulfillment comes in perfect detail. Do you see that in verse 2? Sarah became pregnant, not Hagar. And she gave gave birth to a son, to Abraham. Perfect timing, verse 2. At the very time God had promised him. And the rest of the Bible traces out that promise in perfect detail until the arrival of Jesus. Every single one of God's promises finds its yes and amen in him. Through him, God will make us his sons and daughters. He will forgive us our sins. He will take us to heaven. He will give us his spirit. He will help us to put sin to death. He will answer our prayers. He will speak to us through his words. He will complete the good work that he has begun in everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. In perfect detail, with perfect timing, God's fulfilled promises are intended for our joy. Now, whatever is happening in your life right now, should that not put a a smile on your lips, a sparkle in your eye, and a crease of happiness on your face, however weather-beaten it is? No matter how long we've been waiting, regardless of the exact circumstances of our lives, as Peter says to the Christians who described like Abraham and Sarah, are exiles and strangers in the world, suffering, he says, though you do not see him, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy. Well, that is the first impact God's blessing should have on our lives. Christ-focused, Christ-resourced, Christ-flowing joy. Do you know that? Do we know that today? If we've forgotten it, will we ask God to give it to us afresh and to renew it in our hearts? And and if you sit here today and you think, in all honesty, I've never known that kind of joy, why not ask God to give it to you for the first time? Because God longs to share his joy with us, even in the most surprising ways, as we're going to discover in our second lesson. So second, God's sovereign choice reveals that our greatest need is the spiritual birth. God's sovereign choice reveals that our greatest need is the spiritual birth. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. So Isaac has survived those first few vulnerable years, probably two or three years old, and Abraham cannot wait to show off his son. He's there, look at Isaac, look at him eating that mashed carrot. But then that celebratory meal soon turned sour, verse 9. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking, literally laughing. It's the latest episode in the family soap opera. Hagar and Ishmael, who is now 16 or 17 years old, refused to join Abraham and Sarah in their happiness. And it's not the sort of joyful laughter that Sarah envisaged her neighbors would share with her. It is sinister, malicious mockery. Look at him. What a joke. And Sarah won't stand for it. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, of course, we can empathize, can't we, with Sarah's hurt. She sees Ishmael laughing at her little boy. What mother would not be hurt by that? But must Ishmael and Hagar really pack their bags and never return? Can't they work this out together? Can't they take a second look at the family will and figure out a a way of sharing out the family finances? It 
It's an uncomfortable scene, and I wonder if we are disturbed by it. I think we're supposed to be disturbed by it. It certainly disturbs Abraham. But most disturbing of all, I think, is the fact that God confirms Sarah's demand. He agrees with Sarah. Verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. He loved Ishmael. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Does that disturb you? Remember, they're in the desert. God agrees that Ishmael must be cast out. And the last time someone was cast out in the Bible was Cain, cast out into the wilderness after he'd murdered his brother. And this brother is just laughing at his brother. Why must Ishmael face a similar fate? Verse 12. Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So God quotes his own promise from chapter 17. Back then Abraham had said, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God had answered, I will bless him, but I'm establishing my covenant with Isaac. You see, Ishmael was Abraham's, he was Abraham's son by natural birth. But that natural birth excluded him from God's covenant. He could never inherit the covenant blessings. God's promises were not for him. They were reserved for Isaac exclusively. And that is disturbing. It's uncomfortable. And it's just the same today. God's sovereign choice is the only determining factor when it comes to anyone receiving the blessings of relationship with God. You see, Sarah and Abraham tried to help God out, and Ishmael was born. But God brought Isaac into the world through a spiritual birth, not a natural birth. Not a virgin birth like Jesus, but a spiritual birth. She was 90 years old and barren. It's what Paul says in Galatians 4. The son of the slave woman was born naturally, the son of the freeborn, by a promise. You see, we cannot receive God's blessings by our natural birth or by any worldly effort. Not by trying hard enough to keep God's law, that's the mistake the Galatian Christians had fallen into. And not on the basis of birth or ethnicity either. We receive our relationship with God solely through faith in God's promise. It's a spiritual birth. God's sovereign choice reveals that our greatest need is the spiritual birth. Or in other words, as Jesus said, you must be born again. He said that to a teacher of the law who knew God's word inside out and yet didn't understand how to get into heaven. And Jesus says you must be born again. You need a sovereign spiritual work of God upon your dead heart to make you spiritually alive. Jesus said that to people of his day and he says it to us again today. Because by nature we are Ishmael, not Isaac. We're descended from Adam. We're, we have sin hardwired into our DNA. We deserve to be cast out. We can do nothing to save ourselves, but God in his sovereign grace reaches out, chooses us, and invites us into his family. That is God's sovereign grace. But we might be wondering, well, what about Ishmael and Hagar? Does God care about them? Does God just wash his hands of them? No, not at all. He may not be a covenant child, but he still receives God's mercy. And I'm sure that if we sympathize with, with Sarah as, as, as Ishmael was mocking her little boy, well, even more perhaps we can sympathize with Hagar 
as she, she lays Isaac down, Ishmael down under that bush as if she's laying him in his grave and she makes sure she's a bow shot away, I don't know, 100 meters or something. She can see him, but she can't hear him. But God hears and he still provides. Lift, up, lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Ishmael survives, he grows up, he gets married, and God is present in his life. He's with the boy, verse 20. He's blessed through his connection with Abraham, but he's not a covenant child, and he does not have covenant relationship with God. And I wonder if Ishmael's life out there in the desert is meant to be kind of a visual warning sign to us because we may be near God's people, but not part of them. We may enjoy the blessings of being near God's people, but not actually be one of God's people. We may live in a nation built on Christian foundations. We may attend church. We may have believing parents. And all those things are wonderful privileges. But if we're not children of the promise, if we're not born again of the spiritual birth, we remain outside in the desert, outside of God's true spiritual family. God's sovereign choice reveals our greatest need is spiritual birth. Now, instead of disturbing us, shouldn't that actually increase our joy even more as we realize I could do nothing to save myself, but God, you saved me. If we put our trust in Christ, we are secure for all eternity. And that is the best place to be. So as Jesus said, John chapter 6, all those, the Father comes, all, the, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I will never cast out. So let me just say to you today, if you've not yet come to Jesus, these are, these are his words, not mine. You must be born again. You cannot have relationship with God without the spiritual birth. But if we have been born again, what difference does that make apart from increasing our joy? What difference does that make in the kind of ordinary, mundane seasons of life? Thirdly and finally, God's abiding presence demands our integrity and worship. God's demanding presence intent demands our integrity and worship. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. What a great reputation. Even the pagan world could not miss the fact that Abraham was blessed by God. Those promises of chapter 12 that the world will be blessed through Abraham are, are really are coming true. And wouldn't that be a great reputation for you and me to have as well? Now, our friends and neighbors and colleagues, they might not share our faith, but can they see something of God's blessing in our lives? Could they say, God is with you? They see the joy that we have in a trial or the peace we can rest in when we're faced with uncertainty, or the contentment that we can have when we don't have something that the world says you must have. See, Abraham was a walking testimony to the fact that God was in his life. Might we be like that too? And yet, Abraham's reputation was not squeaky clean, was it? The last time these men met in chapter 20, Abraham had deceived Abimelech into thinking that Sarah was his sister, and that almost brought down Abimelech's kingdom. So Abimelech has a request to make, verse 23. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. 
Show to me in the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness that I've shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. So Abimelech can see the spiritual landscape. He can see where the future's heading. He knows that Abraham's lineage is secure. He knows it's only Abraham and Isaac at the moment, but he knows he will be a great nation. And so he future-proofs his own kingdom. He says, be kind to me, don't lie. And Abraham says, amen to that. God's abiding presence still demands our integrity today, not just amongst ourselves as Christians, but also with the unbelieving world, especially with the unbelieving world around us, with our families and communities at work, in our relationship with the government. God is with us. He expects us to live upright, honest lives all the time in every detail. His reputation is tied up with ours. But what about when those relationships go awry? When we have been honest, but we are still wronged. What does living under God's blessing mean for our integrity then? Verse 25. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now this is a big deal. They've basically turned off the taps. And uh, Abimelech and Abraham, their fortunes are tied up with their flocks and herds. They live in the desert. If they've seized a well, then the business is going to go under. Abraham has been wronged, and he's rightly aggrieved. So what will Abimelech do? Verse 26, but Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this. You didn't tell me, and I heard about it only today. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that the way so many disagreements and misunderstandings happen amongst us and in our world? Something's happened, but no one says anything. And we sit on a grievance and we stew on a grudge and a barrier forms and the wall goes up and the ditch goes down and if only we'd said something at the time. If only we'd sought reconciliation. Verse 27, that's what these two men do. Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a treaty. Essentially, they bury the hatchet. It's a bit of a strange ceremony what's going on here, but they bury the hatchet. And then just as Abimelech had given Sarah a gift of silver to prove that she was innocent back in chapter 20, so now Abraham gives seven lambs to Abimelech to prove that he built the well. Abraham is wronged, but he's, he's ready to move on. And the, well of, the name of the well, Beersheba, is a perpetual reminder of that reconciliation. It means well of the seven or well of the oath. It means both things. And Jesus says that we also ought to be people whose integrity drives us towards reconciliation. Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It's not just when we have something against another person, it's when we know that something, someone has something against us. And it's our duty to seek peace with them. We don't sit on our grievance and stew on our grudge. We do that. Um, it's, it's good to do that, especially as we come to the Lord's table and we recognize that we're gathered together as God's people. We, we reconcile to one another. But how do we do those hard things? How, what is it that motivates us to, to be reconciled and to show integrity, even when we've been hurt or when the world has not um, treated us as we would like it to have done? Well, finally, it's because the abiding presence of God in our lives leads our whole life to be a life of worship. Verse 33. 
Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. It's easy to miss, I think, but this is a high point in Abraham's life. He's got the son of the promise. He's blessed by the nations, at least got a little taste of that from Abimelech. And now he starts to mark out the boundaries of the promised land. Not many things grow in the desert, but a tamarisk tree does. There's a picture of a tamarisk tree. It can grow as tall as 10 meters on very, very little water. And what is more, it's an evergreen tree. It's a picture of life that lasts even in the wilderness. It's, a, it's like a, a border marker saying, this is my land now. And it's also a signpost pointing towards the eternal God who lives forever. It's as if Abraham plants that tamarisk tree and says, God, you are evergreen. You really are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's taken me a long time to learn some of these lessons. 25 years, I've made some pretty big mistakes, and I'm living with the consequences of some of them. But you are the eternal God, evergreen, everlasting, and I worship you today. God's abiding presence demands our integrity and our worship. His blessing impacts our minds, how we think about ourselves, our life, how we live, our hearts, how we feel. It transforms the highs and the lows, the ordinary and the extraordinary, the mundane and the boring and the special seasons of life. God's fulfilled promises, his sovereign choice, his abiding presence. He blesses us through those things today. So let us ask him this morning to fill up our hearts with joy and let us depend on him for the spiritual birth, not our background, not our behavior. And let's respond every day with lives that are marked by integrity and worship. Let me invite you to bow your heads and have a moment of quiet for your own prayer and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Father, we know that we don't yet live in a new creation in heaven. We live in, in a sense, the land of the Philistines, surrounded by those who don't know you. to be part of your people. And Lord, fill up our joy, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.